Hello, hello, and welcome to the local edition on Radio Catskill, your NPR station for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host for this Friday evening, Patricio Robayo. In the second half of the program, we'll commemorate the 20th anniversary of New Paul's historic first same-sex marriages. We will revisit the year 2004, a moment when the village of New Paltz gained unexpected international attention as, as its mayor boldly challenged existing laws to make a profound statement. But before we delve into that, it's Friday on the local edition, and every Friday we check in with the one and only Chris Rowley from the Schwankock Journal. He's going to bring us some insights on what's happening on the pages of the Schwankock Journal and, and what's happening in Elville and Ulster County. And uh, Chris, we'll begin this, we'll end this week, much like we've begun it, by discussing the long-awaited approval of the state's congressional district maps. Uh, Chris, can you share some of your insights and what's happening? Uh, but first, actually, just, maybe just give some folks some kind of some background on on how did we get here. Yeah, it's it's a lot of shaking out going on for various reasons, which we don't have time to get into. But the primary thing here is that the in 2022, the Democrats, with complete control of the legislature in Albany, felt emboldened to attempt to gerrymander New York the way the Republicans have gerrymandered, say, North Carolina or had gerrymandered Wisconsin. If they could do it, the Democrats said, we can do it too. And if they could do it, really do it, they could cut the Republican representation in New York to a shadow. So they steamed in there with this wildly overambitious plan in 2022 that would have eliminated half a dozen Republican districts. And naturally enough, Republican activists appealed that, and they found Judge McAllister in Steuben County, who is a Republican, to hear their case. And he threw out the the Democrats' map and ordered new maps made by an impartial mapmaker. The Democrats went to the State Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in New York, and that court in, in that time had a conservative bloc, all Democrats, but a conservative bloc, headed by Chief Judge Janet DeFiori, and they overruled the Democrats. And so we went back to the maps that, ex- that no, no, not went back, went to the maps that were drawn up by the impartial arbiter that was set up by Judge McAllister. That resulted, along with some other things, in the loss of uh, a few seats by the Democrats, enough to give the Republicans a national majority and the control of the House. And a lot of what we've had since then has been the result of that, that what, what happened in that election here in New York. And part of all of that is the back and forth between New York's congressional 19th and congressional 18th district. And that has been tweaked again, and this time without protests from the Republicans. It was voted through yesterday. The Republicans have agreed to allow it to happen. Minor changes. And very quickly, we can say... Um, Sullivan County stays. It stays in the 19th district. There's no real changes there at all. And the 19th district is represented by uh, Republican Congressman Mark Molinaro. The 18th district is represented by Democratic Congressman Pat Ryan. He was a former uh, county executive for Ulster County. Anyway, uh, his district has lost uh, Ellenville altogether. 
previously Ellenville was divided and there was a line kind of running along the part of the uh, the western side of the Shangam Ridge and then curving up the Fantine Kill and blah, blah. Anyway, now Molinaro has been given all of Ellenville, but also been given Walker Valley and a kind of a band across the center of the town of Shangam out to Walkill, the hamlet or the village of Walkill, not the town, out to there. And that's all pretty much solid Republican voting territory. So that, and well, Ellenville, of course, is more democratic. So that kind of like gives Molinaro's 19th a little bit, a little bit more democratic vote, a little bit. It's a very small adjustment, not enough to really endanger him, but it will make his district slightly more competitive. Ryan, on the other hand, has gained parts of Ulster County, but the most important thing is he gained all of the city of Kingston. So he's got Kingston, and he also has Newburgh. He also has uh, New Paltz, and those democratic bastions, we might call them, gives him enough weight to be safe from the Republican voters of Southern Orange County because he's got most of Orange County too. Anyway, so the changes therefore are minor. Probably these two seats, the 18th and 19th, are a little, a, a little, Molinaro's is probably a little more competitive and, and Ryan's is probably a little less competitive. So he's like a little bit safer. And that appears to be it for our area. For this part of the world, that's it. There's also some shifts and changes down on Long Island. I haven't really absorbed all those yet. I haven't had time, but we'll get to that uh, later. And there's a bit, a few changes, I believe, in Westchester. But I, I, again, don't hold me to that. Don't know. Anyway, so it won't be going to the courts. It won't go to the Court of Appeals this time. There won't be all that fuss and bother. And part of that, we should just note, is that after the, her decision and her block's vote in uh, Judge DeFiori, stepped down just two months later and was replaced by Judge Wilson, who is a, um, a Democrat and a liberal. And since then, another Democrat has, has come onto that court, Caitlin Halligan. So the Court of Appeals does no longer have a dominant four-member conservative bloc, even though everybody's a Democrat. No, not everybody. Sorry, there are, there are Republicans, but most of them are Democrats. That, con that conservative bloc has lost its power. So maybe the Republicans are aware of that and didn't even want to bother with challenges and going there and losing. So, but anyway, but this time around, the Democrats were much more accommodating, much less, much less of a gerrymander attempted this time, which is, it's, it's so the New York state can be a, a mature state with responsible political parties that are not trying to tear the house down. That's a big story for the week. Meanwhile, <clears throat> I could just shift quickly and, and fill out another story for people in Ulster County. Sure, go ahead. Uh, uh, which is that the village of Allenville voted Monday night, the village board of Allenville, the village board of trustees, <clears throat> voted to put forward a mandatory referendum on taking half a million out of the the million or so they have left in their mountain money fund. And that will be used to basically keep the village ticking over and through till the end of fiscal year in June. Uh, well, the end of May. If uh, June 1, it begins again. And now they're building out their budget for next year. And, of course, it's desperate times for the village. It's very – it's broke. And they're held by the state controller's office to align what they can tax, which is $3.1 That's not easy, especially with what we've had in, with inflation over the last five, six years, which was probably somewhere around the region of 17, 18 percent. 
So very difficult for them to deal with, and all eyes are on them if they attempt to do this. But meanwhile, there will be a mandatory referendum that will be voted on by the villagers of Ellenville, and I believe that will be on March the 19th. And that will be held at the village hall melting court in the courtroom. And I think it will run, actually start at noon and run to 8 p.m. I think I'm right about that. Anyway, so that's dramatic, but it was expected, expected news. And I doubt that people will vote it down, but there's always that chance, in which case, Lord knows <laughs> what will happen if that happens. Yeah. So that's the word from here on the, in Ulster County. For Sullivan, these political changes don't mean much. You were in Molinaro, you still are. You're still in the 19th, and I don't think any boundaries have shifted at all. So, What are your thoughts or what do you think is the likelihood that uh, more lawsuits may come out of this, again, from the Republican side, uh, like it has done in the past? It's possible uh, that there are some people who are disgruntled, both Republicans and Democrats, Democrats who wanted more gerrymandering or more effort to improve things for them and Republicans who wanted less. But they, everyone will be told by their attorneys, look at the, the makeup of the Court of Appeals in New York now. Do you really want to go there? That's, I think that's going to be one of the first things that any attorney will say to anybody who wants to, to start a, a lawsuit over, over this, these changes. And the Republican chairman, Mr. Cox, he agreed to it. The Republicans, many Republicans voted with the Democrats to put this out, to set this in. So, you know. There are probably some outliers, or maybe they don't regard themselves as outliers, but there are some who will fancy the idea of taking it to court. But again, I think their first conversation with their attorneys will be, look at the Court of Appeals and who's on it and how it is now. Not the way it was in 2022. That's the story from here. And another crazy day is just <laughs> it's getting going here. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is going. And you see, the election season has begun, so it's now add this to the whole fold of what's happening this year. Um, it definitely, it's going to be a definitely interesting election season. Chris, as always, thank you so much for joining us on the program. We'll be talking to Chris Rowley from the Schwanka Journal. Let us know what's happening in Ellenville and Ulster County. Okay, take care, Patricio. All right. Bye-bye. And switching focus, we're going to be talking about the environment. New York environmental groups and lawmakers are demanding the Environmental Protection Agency EPA dredged the Hudson River again. Research finds that high levels of chemicals are still in the river despite previous dredging efforts. Edwin Vieira from New York News Connection has more. New York lawmakers are calling on the EPA to keep dredging the Hudson River. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has sent a letter to EPA Administrator Michael Regan asking him to accept findings that the agency's earlier dredging efforts failed. Levels of polychlorinated biphenols or PCBs dumped into the river by General Electric are still high, making the water hazardous for nearby municipalities that use it as a primary drinking water source. Ned Sullivan with the nonprofit Scenic Hudson worries about the health impacts of these chemicals. It is associated with cancer, neurological and respiratory disorders. The primary pathway for human exposure is eating fish. This is a big deal 
because there are people who are continuing to subsist on Hudson River fish. The EPA has warned against eating fish caught in the river between Troy and Hudson Falls. An assessment by the group Friends of a Clean Hudson River finds current sediment recovery rates won't allow for natural recovery in fish. GE completed two of three sediment collection programs last year. A third program to collect deeper samples takes place this year. Other agencies have accepted that dredging failed. In 2015, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration reported GE didn't do enough dredging. Sullivan contends the primary reason previous efforts failed is because they weren't extensive enough. Even before the cleanup was undertaken, it was known in public that there was roughly twice the amount of contamination that the cleanup plan was based on. Once the EPA accepts the findings, the agency can examine different options for remediating the river, which will most likely be more dredging. However, Sullivan says that could change with emerging technologies. This is Edwin J. Vieira for New York News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Thank you very much to... Edwin, and to the New York News Connection, we'll be right back and talk about the year 2024. You're listening to the local edition. I've been your host, Patricia Rabao. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Hi there. This is Brian, host of The Secret Show. Friday nights at 9. I'll be playing a mix of indie, alternative, college, rock, and pop. Some new music and some old classics. That's The Secret Show, Friday nights at 9, only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. Welcome back to The Local Edition on Radio Catskill, your NPR station for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host for this Friday evening, Patricio Robayo. Patricio Robayo, however you want to say it. 20 years ago this week, 2,000 LGBTQ plus couples donned their best coats and met at a park in New Pulse to do two things, get married and break the law. The act of civil disobedience tested the New York's marriage laws at the time when same-sex marriage was hotly debated, but still largely illegal in the U.S., on Sunday, friends and advocates reunited to remember those who that made it all possible, and for one couple, to get married again. From the New York Public News Network, WAMC's Hudson Valley Bureau Chief, Jesse King, reports. In February 2004, Jay Blotcher and Brooke Garrett were determined to be married, and they were willing to shop around for laws in different states to do it. Massachusetts became the first state to recognize gay marriage that year, but not until May. And there was a significant effort by some states, endorsed by then-President George W. Bush, to pass a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage nationwide. 
For many, there was a fear that the door could close before it had even opened. So when Blotcher, a seasoned gay rights and AIDS activist, caught wind through his local food co-op that the mayor of New Paltz was planning to marry LGBTQ plus couples at Peace Park, he jumped at the opportunity. I looked at Brooke, I said, I guess we're getting married tomorrow. The mass wedding on February 27th ended up drawing international attention and hundreds of onlookers, including some protesters, but mostly supporters. What was intended to be a four-couple event, including Blotcher and Garrett, grew to more than two dozen ceremonies as couples continued to emerge from the crowd to be married by Mayor Jason West, more than seven years before state lawmakers narrowly voted to legalize same-sex marriage. It was uh, just exhilarating to be part of it to have the support of all these strangers and to know that the world's eyes were upon us. Brooke, would you please repeat after me? I, Brooke, I, Brooke, take you, Jay, take you, Jay, to be my lawfully wedded husband. To be my lawfully wedded husband. And in On Sunday, Blotcher and Garrett renewed their vows with the same ceremony and efficient, but this time without the threat of legal repercussions. I be wed. I be wed. By the power not currently vested in me, but... <laughs> The so-called Love is Love Drag Brunch, organized with the New Paltz Pride Coalition, served as part ceremony, part fundraiser for a new LGBTQ plus center in town. And West, who is now the director of sustainability for the city of Albany, was the guest of honor. 20 years ago, though, he was just a 26-year-old first-term mayor intent on making a mark. West tells WAMC the idea for the wedding was already in his brain while running for mayor. At the time, he was being lobbied by farmer and activist William Van Rostenberg, who was himself hoping to marry his partner of several years. West says he was also incensed by Bush's vocal opposition to gay marriage, and he felt like the ongoing debate over whether LGBTQ plus couples should be granted civil unions didn't go far enough. I always thought that was just not good enough. You know, separate but equal has never been a good policy and for civil rights or for this. By hosting the wedding, West didn't actually expect the couple's marriages to be treated as official. They would still need to be approved by the Department of Health to get a license, and that was unlikely. However, the law neither allowed nor forbid West to solemnize same-sex marriages. And due to a loophole in New York's domestic relations law, a couple without a license was still legally married so long as their union was solemnized. Except the person doing the solemnization is guilty of a misdemeanor punishable by a year in jail and a $1,000 fine. So we thought we could just, in the absence of marriage licenses, just solemnize weddings. And according to domestic relations law, they would be married. And I would be going to court to defend myself against multiple misdemeanors. Were you nervous at all on the day of, of how things could go down? Oh, I didn't sleep the night before. It was, I was terrified. So terrified, in fact, that Van Rostenberg says the wedding was nearly called off. A few days before it happened, Jason was afraid to do it for many reasons. He didn't want the taxpayers of New Paltz to pay millions of dollars of legal fees. I um, had the last meeting in his office. I shut the door. He didn't want to do it. I, in, in the hallway next to his office, I just called some press I know and leaked it to the press and the rest is history. <laughs> so you kind of forced the hand a little bit. Had to. Van Rostenberg and his then-partner, Army Major Jeffrey McGowan, were the first to be married on February 27th. And the day went off without a hitch, at least at first. After the event, West was slapped with 19 misdemeanor charges for solemnizing a marriage without a license. But by this point, West says he was undeterred. The wedding had stirred up so much press that the town now had a wait list of hundreds of couples looking to get married. West felt safe for the pro bono legal team. 
and he promised to continue marrying couples on a regular basis until the court stepped in with a restraining order, which promptly happened. But when West was knocked down, the local clergy stepped up. West says roughly 300 people got married in the three months after the initial New Paltz event. Ultimately, after a year and a half in court, the charges against West were dropped. It was several years before marriage equality became the law of the land, but New York would beat the Supreme Court to legalization by about four years. West hopes the New Paltz weddings played a role in that. The weddings we did in New Paltz normalized gay couples for a lot of people who maybe don't know gay people personally. It's such a normal thing to get married. And, it, you know, it's, it's such a normal, touching act that it's hard to watch people get married and hold hatred in your heart for it. I think we opened a lot of people's eyes to the fact that civil rights should apply to the gay and lesbian community and, and that there are rights, there are you know, over a thousand rights with marriage uh, that these folks are being denied and, and that that's just simply unfair. Welcome to the Love is Love Drag Brunch, everyone! <laughs> My name is Vila Peculiar. I'm the Harriet Women Show Business in the Hudson Valley. Yeah. I'm just an Italian with a dream. Uh, welcome gathering for this event. Um, it has been the nicest thing I've celebrated in a long time, especially with what's been going on in our media and targeted against our queer community. For attendees at Sunday's Drag Brunch, the anniversary also served as a reminder of how fragile those rights can be. Several states have passed restrictions on the transgender community in recent years, and Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman just signed an executive order banning transgender athletes from competing in women's sports. In his concurring opinion for Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court case that overturned Roe v. Wade in 2022, Justice Clarence Thomas suggested the court should revisit other landmark cases, including the case granting marriage equality. Just last week, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee signed a law allowing public officials to refuse to perform marriages for LGBTQ plus couples. West says he's not sure the New Paltz weddings could have happened so peacefully today. The country is even more divided now than it was in 2004. However, he and Blotcher both say the event stands as an important example of the power of organization and helped foster a vibrant LGBTQ plus community in the Hudson Valley. I think the lessons that we can learn from the New Paltz weddings is that when you see injustice, respond to it, push back against the bullies, because there are good-hearted people out there who want to do the right thing, and you need to connect with them and undo all the awful things that conservatives in this country are hell-bent on doing. Blotcher and Garrett were eventually married for real in California in 2008, and Blotcher helped found the Hudson Valley LGBTQ Center in Kingston. Van Rostenberg and McGowan later divorced, but Van Rostenberg regularly hosts weddings at his farm, Liberty View Farm, in Highland. The New Paltz Pride Coalition estimates Sunday's fundraiser collected more than $12,000 in donations that will go toward establishing a new Pride Center in town. Reporting from New Paltz for WAMC's Hudson Valley Bureau on the campus of Vassar College, I'm Jesse King. Thank you so much to the New York Public News Network for that. WAMC's Hudson Valley Bureau Chief, Jesse King, reports. Coming up, an exhibition of new work from artists. From artists, There's a group show opening up tomorrow at the Catskill Art Space in Livingston Manor. Valerie Hatterty is one of the artists, and she makes paintings, sculptures, and installations that explore the issues of memory, place, and history. And she spoke to our very own cultural reporter, Valerie Manzi. 
Good morning, Valerie, and welcome to Radio Chat Skill. Good morning, Valerie. Happy to be here with another Valerie. Yes, we're two Valeries. Okay, so Valerie, you have an opening coming up this Saturday, March 2nd, at CAS in Livingston Manor. Tell us about what you'll be showing in your exhibit. So I'll be showing seven works. One is an older installation from 2006 called Fireplace her, uh, called Overseas Fireplace with Harpoons. And it's a Federalist fireplace with a painting by Frederick Church, um, the icebergs hanging over the mantle. And it's pierced with three harpoons. And it's all constructed of foam core and paper mache. And another um, older piece from 2008 called Return to the Catskills. And it looks like a painting by Asher B. Durand called The Catskills that's been turning back into a tree. And along with those two uh, previous works, I have five new works um, playing with the Vanita genre. Um, the what genre? Uh, Vanita, which is in art history, uh, still life paintings that would often refer to mortality. So they might have a skull, a candle burning down, some flowers, maybe one of the flowers is wilting, much like your flowers um, I just saw in the office had maybe one flower wilting. And um, I the, the older pieces were thinking about climate change and the environment, and then the newer pieces are taking a turn inward to think more about um, the death of nature and also my own mortality. And what are the harpoons about over the fireplace? I saw that one online. So for that piece, I was thinking of placing the viewer in the position of being in a Western affluent interior. And they're looking out at the iceberg painting, thinking about the painting as a window that you look out at another place. But the way of looking is quite aggressive, um, thinking about exploration and conquest and uh, uh, colonial um, exploration and um, so the as if the person inside is throwing the harpoons outward to the icebergs. But in the meantime, they're piercing the fireplace. And there is a harpoon that hits the iceberg dead center that looks like a bullseye. And at that point, there's a hole in the painting where it looks like silt and sand and um, the ocean is coming through thinking about environmental degradation um, from this like very aggressive way of approaching other territories. And there, there's also a seagull on the mantle as if the sea brought the seagull inside. Wow. That, there's a lot packed in there. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you know, it's, it's very experiential. So um, you may not necessarily um go through all these layers of meaning, but uh, hopefully there's an experience for you when you get in the show, since it's three-dimensional and life-size. Okay, and will you have any uh, sculptures in this show? The one freestanding sculpture is the Return to the Catskills, um, and it looks like a tree where the top half is still a painting that is um, pecked with holes. And you'll see at the very top of the gold frame, there's a woodpecker. So woodpeckers um, faced extinction or are facing extinction from uh, industrialization and logging, deforestation. So it's almost as if 
this painting of the Catskills was left outside and was returning back to nature. And then the woodpecker can use it again as an environment. Or maybe the woodpecker was fooled by the realism in the painting and thought it was a real tree. Or maybe the woodpecker is getting revenge on the painting. Um, a lot of these early American paintings are talked about in terms of manifest destiny, that it was the white settlers white right to expand westward. And that um, along with that becomes the deforestation. So maybe the woodpecker is getting revenge on the, the painting itself. Wow, you put a lot of intellectual thought and analysis into your work. Sometimes the idea comes first as a visual, and then I go backwards thinking about different meanings. Um, sometimes it's not all planned ahead of time. I like to look through art history books and go to museums, and I and an idea might just hit me of a visual that I think will be interesting, and then I do more research and um, parse out more layers that could be in the content. And you're also a writer. Yes, I've um, been really interested in creative writing all my life, but I haven't had time to put towards that. But um, when I turned 50, I thought, I always thought I'd be a writer later in life. And then I turned 50 and thought maybe I should get started. <laughs> That's it for the local edition. If you ever miss a show, we have a podcast. You can find us on our podcast and we find your favorite podcast. There's more to that interview if you want to check out the Radio Chat Skill Podcast on Apple, Stitcher. Search for WJFF, Radio Chat Skill, or search for WJFF, the local edition. Subscribe, share it, tell your friends. Find us on social media. We're at WJFF Radio Chat Skill. We're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, everywhere we're there. We'll be, we'll be back on Monday. Doing this all over again. Talk to Dan Hoos from the county government about AI. And then checking in with New York Focus. And on Radio Chatska, we'll be talking to the Chief of Police for the Village of Liberty, talking about the decrease in overdoses that happened last year. That's all happening on Monday. I've been your host, Patricia Rabao. Have a good night, Lucy. Take care.